We are on a uh, series, One Nation Under, Under God, and uh, um, I just want to make sure you n- realize why we're preaching these messages. A lot, a lot of times, you know, we're going through a lot of these messages and these teachings, and um, inside, it's just reaffirming things that you already believe, and, and you might think that I'm preaching to the, to the choir, but... Um, what these are designed to do is put words, ideas, to what you already believe in your heart. So that you can communicate it to others. Because that's the issue. Because it's time for the church to once again have the ideas and have the prophetic vision to look into society, and have answers. It's not enough just to be outraged. It's not enough to be on social media and watch a bunch of Christians being outraged. We have to have answers. Right? If if, if we don't have, if the salt does not have saltiness, what good is it? It says that it's meant to be just thrown out and trampled on. And I believe that maybe the church, we might be salt, but maybe we don't have the saltiness that we should have. We don't have, what, what is salt used for? It's used for flavor. Yes, but it, also in Jesus' time, it was a, pr- a preserver. It kept things from rotting. And our society is rotting And maybe our society is rotting because we're just outraged without any saltiness to preserve society. So as we continue with this message, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. Was Jesus a socialist? Let me word it another way. Does Scripture describe Scripture promote a socialist ideology. There are many that believe it does. And they can quote you scriptures. We're going to look at all this today. This is what we're going to be answering. But before we do this, what we have to do is remind you of some truths that we've already examined, what we've already looked at. Do you remember what the difference is between a right, what rights and goods are? Do you remember that? See, this is important. If you can't clearly distinguish between a right and a good, you have you will not be able to talk intelligently to a person that believes in socialism. The difference between rights and good are. Rights come from God. Goods are the product of someone else's labor. Remember that freedom of speech is a right. A printing press is a good. The right to buy a home is a right. The home, however, is a good and it must be earned by our own labor. The right to bear arms and protect yourself 
and your property is a right. A firearm, though, is a good. Ask the average liberal, socialist, if they believe, if they expect the government to go around handing out guns. They'll say, no, absolutely not. See, they understand the difference between a right and a good when it comes to that. Now, do you remember what you would have to do if, you, if, if politicians, if government started assigning goods as though that they were rights to the people? Because we have people doing that. We have people saying that health care is a right. Education is a right. A, 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 a decent paying job is a right. Decent housing is a right. So what do you have to do if you made all those things rights? If you made goods rights, you would have to enslave people. And slavery is bad. Right? Pretty simple, right? Freedom, good. Slavery, bad. See, goods that are granted as rights require you to enslave men fiscally or physically to ensure a continuous supply of goods that you have promised to others. So if you promise people housing, you either have to enslave people that supply the lumber to build the homes and the, the builders that build the homes, to assemble the homes under a whip. But we don't do that. Instead, we say, you go to work. We'll take what you earn from the sweat of your own brow, you, you, what, you work, what you earn through your own labor, we will take that from you and give it to someone else. It's slavery. It's the same thing. And James 1.27 says, Pure undefined religion in the sight of God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. So is Jesus a socialist? Does Scripture promote socialism? Jesus often talked about taking care of the poor. He actually commanded us to take care of the poor. That's something that we are to do, is take care of the poor. Um, verses like James says that true religion includes taking care of widows and orphans. So is this promoting socialism? Is this promoting, is this promoting this idea of, of, of socialism? Let's look at a, 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 a parable that Jesus shared. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, this is a very familiar um, parable, but most people don't look at it deep enough to see what's actually being said. And it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, 
You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Have any of you ever done this? You love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind? No, we can't do it. See, Jesus wasn't saying, this is how you earn eternal life. He was saying, this is what you got to do. Now do it. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? No, you don't. Because most of the time, we don't share the gospel to someone because we're afraid that they might be offended and get mad at us. So we actually love ourselves more than our neighbor because we're worried about how us preaching the gospel to them will affect us, not them. We all have failed and fallen short of the glory of God. So Jesus is just raising, is it, the law just, it, it, it destroys us. It brings us to our knees. It says, my God, my God. Save me, for I am a sinner. But the lawyer answered correctly. Yep, that's what you got to do. If you want everlasting life, eternal life, this is what you got to do. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he encountered robbers, And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by um, coincidence, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on his journey came up upon him. And and when he saw him... He felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own animal. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed compassion to him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So what action was shown by the Samaritan in loving his neighbor? It was taking care of him, right? It was taking care of him. But notice... There are two others in this picture. Of course, you have the man that, that the robbers beat up and left there, but you also have the innkeeper. We're, not gonna, we're just going to forget about the priest and the, the Levite. Because we're talking about taking care of our neighbor. So you have the Samaritan. You have the man that was beaten. And you have the innkeeper. You know, and... After the good, the good Samaritan takes the injured man into the inn, did he say to the innkeeper, Mr. Innkeeper, here's some money, and when I come back, I'll take the injured man, 
but I want you to pay half of the bill. That's not what he said, is it? Did he say, Mr. Innkeeper, if you, it, it, would be not, it would not be loving to let this man suffer, so when I come back, we are going to force you and your neighbors to share some of the costs for this poor man. What, what if the Good Samaritan had hired some goons with badges to force the innkeeper to take care of this injured man? Would that be loving to the innkeeper? No. And worse, it wouldn't be loving to the injured man. Do you think the injured man wants an innkeeper who is unwilling to help be forced to help him? Would the innkeeper have done as good of a job if he was forced to take care of this man or if he knew that he was assured payment for taking care of this man? So in this scenario, who is responsible to take care of the poor? Is it some unwilling party? See, a lot of people don't understand this. Is that when you force people to do good, you are taking away their free will to willingly choose to do good. So is the good Samaritan who so who is the good Samaritan here? Who's, Je- who's Jesus saying the Good Samaritan? He's saying it's supposed to be us. It's supposed to be the church. It's not the government forcing others to take care of the poor. It's the church. This is what Christ wants us to do. We, the church, are the Good Samaritan. We are to take care of the poor, the sick, and the weak. We are not to force others to, or get the government to force others to do this. Because it's unloving to go to the innkeeper with a gun and force him to take care of the sick man in this parable. Right? So when people read or hear verses like in James or the statements that Jesus made about taking care of the poor, they think that Scripture is promoting a socialist worldview. And if we are to love our neighbors, shouldn't our government reflect that, that same view Jesus had and take care of the poor too? No. That's not what governments are for. Governments are to protect your rights. While Scripture, scripture does say that we are to take care of the poor, What people miss is that it says you take care of the poor. It does not say force your neighbor to give to the poor. This is a moral issue. And and, and do you see that ignoring these types of moral issues causes oppression? And forcing people to pay for others is oppression. Which is unloving. Jesus said to give your shirt off your back to the needy. He did not say force your neighbor to give his shirt off his back to the needy. So loving our neighbors does not include include them 
or forcing them to pay for the poor or the sick or the suffering. Let's look at this another way. Here's another, another way. Imagine that you lived in a, on a cul-de-sac, right? And there's 10 houses on this cul-de-sac. And the person to your right is a rich person. He worked hard all his life, earned a lot of money, and is doing very, very well. And he has multiple cars. He has multiple cars, and they're very, they're very nice ones, right? Uh, to your left is a poor immigrant who moved into the country recently. He has four kids and is the sole breadwinner for his family. They have one car that barely works. You, you do all right. You, all, you, you do all right financially. You're, you're not extremely rich. You're, 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 you and your wife both work. You have two cars which you need for commuting, right? One day, an unfortunate thing happens. Your poorer neighbor's car breaks down and he loses his job. There's no way to fix it and no way for him to find another job without a car. Now ask yourself, is it morally acceptable for you to go over to your poorer neighbor's house and give him your car? Yes. Yes. Okay, but that presents a problem because you need your car, right? To take care of your family. So let's look at another option. Is it morally acceptable for you to go over to your richer neighbor's house and ask him to give, for him to give one of his cars to your poor neighbor? Yes, that is also moral. There's nothing wrong with asking them to give, right? Yes, asking them to give. But then your neighbor says, look, I really feel for our neighbor, but I like my cars. They are collector, they're collector items. I can't lend it to them. And look what he did to his last car. So is it morally acceptable option for you to go over to your richer neighbor's house with a gun and force him to give one of his unneeded cars to your poor neighbor? Absolutely not. Well, okay. But you're an individual, right? What if you go to the, your other seven neighbors and have them all vote on the question of whether your rich neighbor should give the poorer neighbor a car? And the vote ends up being nine to one against the rich neighbor. Now, is, is, that, is it moral acceptable for you to take one of your rich neighbor's cars? No. Which way do you think that Jesus would vote? Do you think he would approve of that? Of course not. That's stealing. And it's oppression. Well, what if you got the mayor in the entire city to vote that your rich neighbor must give his car to your poorer neighbor? What if you got the entire country and your socialist president to rule that your rich neighbor should give his car to your poor neighbor? Do you know what that is called? Indentured servitude. Or forced labor. When someone here, we're talking about the state, unethically takes what you've worked so hard for, and what it, what's worse is that 
if your rich neighbor is making $300,000 a year, he's not being forced to give one car away at gunpoint. He has to give as much as 30% of his income, which equals $100,000 a year. And that's at least five decent cars per year. It may be legal, but it certainly is not moral. You see that if it's immoral for you as an individual to force someone to give up his property, it is still immoral for a group or any third party to do so as well. Renaming that group government does not suddenly justify their actions. The Ten Commandments applies to individuals as well as groups as well as governments. Stealing is stealing. The car is a good. It's not a right. And you are violating someone's rights by taking it from, from, from the one whose legal or moral labor produced it. The rich don't give up their rights by virtue of being more industrious or smarter. And remember... If you take from the rich unjustly, what stops you from taking from the poor at some point in the future? And truthfully, the middle class carries the largest load of indentured servitude because of the way we pay our taxes. But that's a whole nother lesson. Again, loving our neighbors does not include forcing them to pay for the poor or the sick or the suffering. Let me restate this. Loving your poor neighbors does not include not loving the middle class or your rich neighbors such that you force them to pay for the poor neighbors. Loving our neighbors means we, the church, are to pay for the poor, the sick, and the suffering. We are not expected the government to do so or to force others to do so. Socialism is nothing more than forcing other people to donate to your favorite charity at the point of an IRS gun. It's not the state's job to take care of the poor. It's the church's job. It's our job. Remember when, 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 you, when you make the state take care of the poor, they allocate goods as rights and thus violate the rights of the people. True rights came from God. So, in fact, the good Samaritan, in, the, in the Good Samaritan story, we see that, see that it is the church who is to take care of the poor. And if you look at history of man in the last 2,000 years, it's the church who has led the way in health care, healing, and caring for the sick. We watched that in the video of the, opening, of the opening of the service. The church today is still the largest provider of health care in the world. We are the ones that created the first church, or the first hospitals, the first education systems and universities. We are the ones that created the prison system. Why? Because in the past, they cut your hand off. They throw you in the stocks. They hang you. And I, think, I believe it was a Presbyterian pastor that says, 
These people can be rehabilitated by the, through the gospel of Jesus Christ and be upstanding citizens and, and a value to our society. I won't go down where the Presbyterian church is today. Florence Nightingale. It was a Christian, Florence Nightingale, who pioneered nursing, believing that God had called her to take care of the sick. It was, a, it was Christians like David Livingston and Hunston Taylor who created many of the first clinics all over the world as missionary doctors. You know, in socialist countries right now today, where they can have free medicine or they have missionary clinics, do you know which one the people choose to go to? The missionary clinics. See, some might scoff at this idea and say, we can't go back to that system. Medical technology is so advanced, and there's no way the church can keep up. If someone says that to you, ask them what the name of their hospital is. They'll say something like St. Mary's, St. Luke's, St. Jude, Good Samaritan, St. Joseph's, Covenant, something like that. Christian hospitals are some of the most technologically medical advanced in the world. Secondly, if a Christian organization is not being responsible with your donations, you can stop giving and find a better organization. If the government is doing that, which it does repeatedly over and over again, if they're being untruthful, if they're not using the finances right, you can stop giving to them, but you'll end up in jail. Moreover, Christian organizations care for the whole person, and this is key. Christian organizations care for the whole person. They want people to recover and grow and learn and be independent. Most government organizations create more dependence, as we've seen with the utter failure of the welfare system. You ever see the sign, don't feed the bears? They become dependent. We don't want people to be dependent on anyone but God Almighty. We want them to be free. We want them to be liberated. We want them to be a blessing to others. Do you know that studies have shown that children under five who had spent just two months a year since birth on welfare had cognitive abilities that were 20% below those who had received no welfare at all, even when you compare them to children who were in the identical and social economical factors such as race, family structures, mother's IQ, and education, family income, and neighborhood residence. There is something about that stigma of putting that label on an individual that does something to them psychologically. Excessive welfare hurts its recipients. It demoralizes them and reduces them to an addictive 
dependency that can ruin their lives for generations to follow. Welfare creates the need for more welfare. That is not compassion. That is oppression. When a government takes the property from one person and gives it to another, it sets up a lose-lose game that they disguise as a win-lose game. One group is coerced, the other is degraded. The tr- this is not the case if, if it had been taken care of by the church. The church t- works to restore the whole person through the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bring them back into their identity in Christ Jesus and how God created them to be, and how God sees them, and seeing themselves the way that God sees them. Government welfare has been a wrecking ball in America's poorest communities. No country has ever become prosperous by its dependence on foreign aid. And no one ever rose out of poverty by more and more dependence on welfare. But can we really replace government? When it comes to charity, when it comes to taking care of the poor, taking care of the sick, yes, yes we can, but we, but we can't get there overnight. We can't just say, stop all, all the government charity. If we did that, it'd be, we'd have terrible consequences on the poor and the weak. We'd have people dying in the streets. It's going to be up to the church to step back in and take over charitable causes that, that the state has been doing such a lousy job at. We have to get there slowly. And the only way that we can do this is for Christians to start being involved in legislation and slowly make the church the primary provider of goods to the poor, the primary provider of health care to the sick who can't afford it, the primary provider of comfort to the dying, love to the orphans. And in all this, we will be loving God and bringing the gospel message to the lost. See, that's one thing that we don't realize is we have lost the opportunity to share Jesus Christ because we've turned these responsibilities over to the government. And instead of God being their source and their provider, government becomes their God. So as we do this, the state will slowly get out of this business that they don't belong in at all. They're not, that's not why the, the governments are even established. But you may be thinking, what about the welfare and the aid to the families with dependent children? And of, of course, all the costs of health care. After all, the government spends billions on programs like that. Can the church really replace all that? The government actually spends almost $1.2 trillion every year on what they call charity. Remember this, the money the government is spending comes from somewhere. (laughs) It doesn't just magically appear in the federal treasury. The more money the government confiscates for counterproductive welfare programs, the less money that is available in private hands for families, investments, churches, and charities. Whenever the government takes a dollar out of your hard-earned money for welfare, health care, food, or shelter for the poor, only 20 cents actually gets to the poor. 
The rest ends up paying for government bureaucracy. So if America spends, it's almost a complete switch, even a little better through um, private charities. Private charities, um, 15 cents or less goes to the running of the organization, and at least 85 cents goes to the poor. So in America, if America spends $1.2 trillion a year on welfare and health care for the poor, that means it may be that the Christians need only to come up with $200 billion. $200 billion, right? In charity, saving almost 50% of the total U.S. federal budget. Now this won't wouldn't work if government was the one giving the money to the charities. Because charities stay lean and effective because they have to compete. They have to compete for people's donations. And it has to be of quality and efficiency of the donations. Not in how much they contribute to some politician's campaign. It's actually unloving to let the government continue to be in the business of charity when we could help six times the number of people with the same amount of money. Think about this. Every time a government meets someone's physical needs, the church has a lost an opportunity to witness and show Christ's love to that person and disciple them into the abundant life that God, through Christ Jesus, has for them. So remember that $200 billion? That's a lot of money. And that's what we would need to run what the government does right now for charity? Well, the last few years, and even despite going through the recession, we in America gave over $300 billion to charity. Not a year, but over the last couple of years. When we adjust that, for, um, according to the gross um, national product, that's nine times larger than the closest nation, which are the Germans. Nine times. Christians, the people of America, give nine times more than the next country. And it's 11 times more than the next closest, which is the Italians. And I think the Catholic Church is in Italy. Americans are the most giving people in the entire world. Do not let people shame you. We are the most generous people on the face of the planet. America is good because its people are good. So, so you see... That $200 billion is only two-thirds of uh, more than what we need, than, than what we already are giving right now. And that $200 billion saves $1.2 trillion, which is 50% of the total U.S. federal budget. And if we get the right legislators making laws, 
the government could give us double deductions and even cut our taxes by 50%. Imagine having a rate of 18%. And then Americans would be free to give even more. Everybody should realize that for the last few generations, the government has brainwashed the church. They brainwashed Christians. We've allowed generations of kids who've grown up thinking it's the government's job to take care of the poor, not our job. We need to break this cycle, break the wheel, and, and, and turn the American church back to its primary role. We need to preach the gospel, make disciples, heal the sick, feed the poor, take care of widows and orphans. The church is responsible to provide charity and goods, and the government is only responsible for protecting our rights to do so. Poverty will never be alleviated by charity or government handouts. Understand this, though. Poverty has never been alleviated in all of history through charity and government handouts. Historically, there's only one path up that mountain, and that is economic growth. And that was seen clearly a few years ago, just in 2016 and 2020. More people got off welfare than ever, ever, ever in modern American history. Why would we think that Africa, or Vassar for that matter, will become prosperous on foreign aid or charity when no society has ever prospered that way? Why would we waste our time fighting poverty with tools that do not work when we know what does work? I'm not saying that we shouldn't be charitable. There, there are times, there is emergencies, there are things that people need immediately assistance, they need help, they need to get on their feet, but it does not become a dependence. We minister to the entire person and we get them so that they too are generous and able to give to others. We simply need to practice effective charity, but we must never forget its limits. So was Jesus a socialist? Well, let's learn from his own teaching. In Matthew 25, verse 14, it says, For the kingdom of heaven, this is how the kingdom of heaven is like, a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, and each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. So in this story, who is the man in this story supposed to be? Who is Jesus saying that this man represents? God. And who are the servants in this story? Who do they represent? Us, right? Then he went, then he who had received five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid, it from, hid, hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled his accounts with them. 
So he said to so he said so he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, "Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them." The Lord said to him, "Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord." He also he also who had received two talents came to the Lord and said, "Lord." You delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look. There you have what is yours. But the Lord answered him and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reaped where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers that at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. (laughs) It sounds like to me, that the kingdom of heaven is pro-market, pro-free market. It promotes taking what you have been given by God and prospering and increasing it. And truthfully, because I know the heart of God, if that one guy, the, the one person with the one talent came back and said, Lord, I went and I tried, I did my best, but I lost your talent. I think the Lord's result would have been, or reply would have been even better. And understand, we have to change the way that we speak too. Because we're, we promote freedom. In, in the free market thinking. Do you know, most, most Americans don't even know where the term capitalism came from. It came from the communists and the socialists. That's the name that they gave the Americans. They were capitalists. They liked their isms and ists. America was always known as free market. Free market. So don't let them put their label on you. See, and this lines up with with so many other scriptures in the New Testament that command us, like 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. For even when I were with you, we command you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk around among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Man, the Apostle Paul is mean. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, but if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those in his own household, He has denied the faith 
and is worse than an unbeliever. So apparently the gospel and the faith that we have in Christ Jesus applies to more than just saying a prayer and going to heaven one day. It actually applies to taking care of your family and being, being someone that is productive in society and that reflects God's image. Ephesians chapter 4, let him who stole steal no longer. Why does a person steal? To get ahead, right? Then he says, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, that is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Think about this. He's saying, if you want to get ahead, stop stealing. Work with your hands and give. That's the kingdom way of getting ahead. Work, give, expect God to increase. Well, Christians don't even believe that. It's time for the church to treat humans as fully spiritual beings rather than just mere mouths to feed or a voting block. That they have divine purpose, they have value, they have abilities to contribute to society. To do this, we do this by encouraging economic freedom rather than government charity. We teach the poor to fish and instill Christian values which ultimately transform culture and will do far more to reduce poverty in the long run. It is time for us to abandon programs that do not work and prophetically be a voice for rule and law, justice and human rights for all, poor, middle class, and rich. True social justice is not trying to put people on welfare, but trying to get them off it. Because it's bad for them. It's bad for their kids. But the problem is, is we're so selfish. We like how it makes us feel. We, we like giving to someone because it makes, makes us feel good. We like the idea of saying that I'm a moral person because I'm going to tell the government to take from another person and give it to those that are in need because it makes me feel good. But it does not help the people that are in poverty. It does not lift them out of poverty. It, 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 it actually brings oppression and disgraces them. Whenever, whenever someone talks like that, they should feel shame. Brother Paul, the church he once attended, they had a food program where they, where they gave food out. And a, a guy came up to him and says, we all excited and happy, we gave out more, more bags of groceries than we've ever gave at, at any time. And he looked at him because he has a Christian worldview, and he says, that's terrible. That's terrible. We should be excited when we don't have to give out any food.
And again, I'm not saying that we abandon all charity. We don't say that we don't help those in need. But if that's all we do, we are just patting ourselves on the back and, and we are tasteless salt that should just be thrown out in the streets and trampled on. True social justice is not trying to get people on welfare, it's to get them off. But remember, the church who is made up of people will never be the solution like it once was if we're overtaxed, over-restricted, repressed, and oppressed. This is why if we are going to truly take care of the poor, if we're going to truly talk about um, solutions for the poor and the oppressed in America, we first have to take care of the laws of this nation. Amen? Amen. Do you see how this all goes together? And this, I understand, this is a 30,000 foot, foot view. Right? I'm not up here and in 52 minutes giving you every single solution, but we have the solution. We have the solution. And government has repeatedly demonstrated that they do not. They do not. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your great love. We thank you that you care for the widow. You care for the orphan. You care for for the oppressed and, and, and those that are poor and, and the sick. And it is our job as the church to be the light and the glory of God in their lives. To take care of their needs, but at the same time, reveal Christ in them, the hope of glory. To show them that the life that they're currently living is not the life that they have to live. And that their past does not have to dictate their future. And Heavenly Father, we just pray right now, we pray that the church universal in America would get an understanding of their place in our society. That they would awaken from the stupor and the brainwashing that government has done. That men of God would enter into our political system and our government system. And pass laws that bring freedom, that no longer oppress the people, that protect rights, and create an environment where people have more and more and more to give away. Heavenly Father, who knows where this can go through social media, our podcasts. YouTube. We ask that you would use us any way that you feel fit. We love you. We praise you. And we desire above all that this would be one nation under God. And Jesus as King. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Karis New Testament Church. For more information or to contact us, go to www.charisntc.org. And remember, you are deeply loved, highly favored, and destined to reign in Christ Jesus.